You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you could, please remain standing with me as we read the word of God. Genesis 45 is our passage of scripture this morning. Genesis 45, starting with verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when, he made jo- when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt hurry up and go up to my father and say to him thus says your son Joseph God has made me Lord over all Egypt come down with me do not tarry you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's children and your flocks your herds and all that you have there I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones And for your wives, and bring your father, and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Verse 21. Sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five 
changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, and which, he had, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This chapter, it's a continuation of the scene that we heard last week in chapter 44. And as we just read, we see in this chapter an incredible picture of the grace of God. It's an incredible picture of the grace of God through his providence and through the, his forgiveness expressed in the life of Joseph. And it's expressed in the life of Joseph specifically as he forgives his brothers. And with these two aspects of God's grace, his providence and his forgiveness, we see blessings beyond measure. Now, forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the sin that is being forgiven. And we don't receive the forgiveness or give forgiveness simply by having the penalty of the sin magically wiped out. Otherwise, forgiveness would be meaningless. What I'm getting at is that the penalty of sin has to be paid. The penalty of sin has to be paid. But here's the question. How then is Joseph able to even forgive his brothers? How was he able to forgive his brothers? So a bit of a recap here. Kind of like as you uh, watch those miniseries that you stream and, and you kind of say on the previous episode of the story of Joseph, this happened. So we're going to go through that. But I know you guys binge watch, so you just like skip the recap, right? <laughs> well, let's do the recap here because it's critical. You recall in chapter 37, the jealousy that drove Joseph's brothers to hate him being the obvious favorite of their father, Jacob. He made him that special coat, and they hated him for it. It drove their uh, brothers to hate him, even to the point where they wanted to kill him, especially after Joseph dreamed the dream where his brothers would bow down to him. So much so that not only did they want to kill him, they, there's no way that they could speak peacefully to him. And that's how it's written there in chapter 37. This hatred drove them to kill him, but they would have if it were not for Reuben. Reuben stepped in and said, hey, I'm, let's just put him over here in the pit. And then afterwards, he intended to go ahead and, and save him and rescue him. But that didn't happen. 
Judah devised a plan to sell him into slavery. His own brother into slavery. So what we see here is a picture, an ugly picture, really, of envy and hatred. And then it gives birth to this murderous desire. And then it's a heartless conspiracy. They're lying to their own father about his son's death. How heartless can that be? And it was a horrifying sin. An act of evil, certainly against Joseph, and definitely against their father, but ultimately it was a sin against God. It was a sin against God. All sin is sin against God. And Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers is something that couldn't have originated from him. It truly was of divine origin. And here's one of the points I want to make this morning, that God, in his kind hand of providence, he was the very reference point for Joseph. He was the anchor that he needed. He was the ballast that Joseph had, not only in understanding the circumstances, but also to understand and to even more act through those circumstances by faith. I want to say that again. God, in his kind hand of providence, was the very reference point, and it was the ballast. He was the anchor that Joseph needed and had in his circumstances to understand them, but more importantly, to move through them by faith. So Joseph's here. He's experiencing God's presence and his stead fast love that was made clear in Moses uh, depicting that in chapter 38 excuse me 39 and because of God's presence because of his steadfast love he was able to live a life of integrity so when he was confronted by Potiphar's wife you remember the story Potiphar's wife was tempting him to sin he was able to say how can I do this wickedness and how can I sin against God? He recognized because God was his reference point, his understanding of his sin was not just against Potiphar's Potiphar, but against God himself. And so even when he was wrongly accused and punished for something he didn't do, you remember, he was sent to prison, he didn't become embittered. He remained faithful and as Genesis 39, 21 says, the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love in prison. So now, next part of the story. He's being released from prison. And because of his unwavering love for God, because of the unwavering love that God had showed him, Joseph acknowledged God as the interpreter of dreams. And he has the faith to believe that God will give him the interpretation even when the risk is offending the one who can put him back into prison. You remember his explanation of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh's dream? Three times Joseph says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And the third time, he emphasizes it even more. He says that the time is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. It was going to happen. 
And here's what I want to establish here. It's very clear in the written record that Joseph continues to understand and exercise this understanding of God being in control of all things, whether he was in prison, whether he was in Pharaoh's palace, and now even in this worldwide famine. So during the famine, which forced his brothers to travel down to Egypt to buy grain, when Joseph recognized them, it says that he remembered his dreams. He's putting things together. He's remembering. And then he hatches a plan which we have seen unfold through these last chapters. And through Joseph's plan, we see the conviction that is set into Judah and the rest of his brothers. And even in their confession, Joseph has compassion upon them. And then we see when he finally sees his younger brother, Benjamin, his, his only full brother, when he sees him coming, Joseph pa- Joseph's past, it seems to be coming back to him, flooding back, so much so that he was overcome with emotion. And Moses writes that he had this warm compassion for his brother, so much so that he was deeply stirred and he had to find a private place where he could just weep where he could just sob aloud, unfettered. And then we come to the point where last week, which is our scene today, chapter 44, Joseph has this ploy that after a big banquet, he places his silver cup of divination in his younger brother's bag, and he's intending in some way, shape, or form to capture his brother Benjamin, to keep him to himself. And then here's when Judah steps in. Judah, once the ringleader of the conspiracy, he now shows fruit, fruit reflective of his repentance. Judah, who was guilty of masterminding the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah, who was taking part in genocide. Judah, who was guilty of of adultery. He's now through the gracious transformation of God. He's willing to sacrifice his life for the one living son for whom his father loves most, Benjamin. And it's here that we see Judah be true to the pledge he made to his father. He's imploring Joseph, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. And so the story continues. Let's look at chapter 44, verse 33. Chapter 44, verse 33. Judah is saying, Now therefore, Joseph, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. We continue in chapter 45, verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it in the household of Pharaoh heard it. Here's Joseph. He's a man of wisdom. 
integrity. He's Lord over all of Egypt, but he was no match for the flood of emotions. He's losing control. He's wailing aloud. Picture that. Was it guilt? Was it guilt for what Joseph was planning to do in keeping Benjamin for himself? Was it because he was confronted with a conviction through the compassionate sacrifice of his half-brother Judah for his only brother Benjamin for the sake of his father Jacob? Or was it grief? That despite his success and prosperity, knowing it all came from God, it seemed to, in that moment, pale in comparison to all the lost years of not being with his father. The ruler of the most powerful nation on earth who had a reputation above reproach, as verse one says, could not control himself. In this emotionally charged scene, Joseph cries out in order to have everyone leave and it's here, church. It's here that the providence of God comes through and Joseph revealing himself and revealing his heart for his father. Look at verse three. I am Joseph, he cries out. Is my father still alive? And notice, notice his brother's reaction. They cannot even speak, much less answer the question. They're stunned with disbelief. 22 years have passed by. And here it is, they're dismayed. Now, the word dismayed, it sounds a little bit light here, but it's the Hebrew word, Bahal. What that actually means that they were struck with fear. They were struck with fear. It's like they were frozen with terror. They were stopped in their tracks. And it's here where the grace of God is unmistakably displayed. Joseph, in recognizing the reaction of his brothers and what they may be thinking, he draws them even closer. Look at this. And he says, Come near to me, please. And it was an act of tenderness. It was an act of understanding. It was as if to say, I know what you may be thinking, but let me help you. Then he said in verse four, I am your brother. I am your brother. He's expressing this peace through relationship. The peace through forgiveness. And here's where sin is brought up, but it's not to jab them. He's not putting it in his face, in their face. But as he acknowledges their sin, he doesn't diminish its significance. That's important. But he places it in its proper perspective in the light of the providence of God. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt, into Egypt. And then Joseph continues using this language of forgiveness and understanding what they must be feeling in verse five. And now, don't be distressed. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Think about that. And this is where we see 
um, the denouement. It's like a literary term where the story is explained. All these things are coming together. It all comes to an understanding that we see that God in his providence had sent Joseph before his brothers to preserve life. And there's no other way you could explain that because it fits into the larger biblical story of God preserving life to accomplish his ultimate purpose of giving life through his son, Jesus Christ. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The truth and the reality of this particular circumstance, once again, as we place it in its proper framework of God actively working his plan, even through the sin of Joseph's brothers, and the circumstance of this catastrophic life event, the famine, all of this is meant to accomplish the purpose of God preserving his chosen ones and keeping his covenant to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Do you see that? In verse six, he says, for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, verse seven, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, dear brothers, but God. This could boggle the mind, but how, how could Joseph have such clarity and conviction about what is happening here? He says this unequivocally. Now think about this. Joseph, for the past 22 years, he spent time as a slave on his way to Egypt, and he spent time in prison. And during that time, no doubt, no doubt he had time to replay in his mind the stories of his father Jacob. How he had heard of God speaking to his father through his dream. Where as a young man, Jacob was being deceived by Laban and God was telling him to return to the land of his fathers and that God will be with him. And then experiencing the very presence of God, wrestling with God and then being humbled by him, and then being delivered by his twin brother Esau. And then most significantly, he's recalling the stories of when Jacob was worshiping the God of his fathers. And then no doubt Joseph heard of his grandfather Isaac. Isaac was calling upon the name of the Lord. He was trusting in his promise to his father Abraham that he would be blessed with many offspring. And Isaac was digging and receiving life in the very same water wells that had sustained Abraham. And then no doubt here that Joseph recalled the story of his great-grandfather Abraham and how God had kept his promise, providing himself a sacrifice, sparing Abraham from sacrificing his only son, whom he loved. The clarity and the conviction Joseph had in pronouncing to his brother that, brothers that why God was doing what he did is something that can only be attributed to the continual faithfulness 
and the continual steadfast love of God through keeping his promises to his people. God keeps his promises to his people. Kent Matthews, he says this, by Joseph's recollection of his life's course in the context of his father's God, who made promises of presence and provision, Joseph observed the higher purpose of saving others. Through the recollection and remembering of God's past promises, he's seeing the higher purpose of saving others. Look at verse 8. He, God, has made me, Joseph, a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Do not wait. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And we see something remarkable here in Joseph, which as you get older and you're in a season of life where you begin to take care of your parents as they grow older, we see a role here where Joseph, not Jacob, is the provider. And he wants to do nothing more than to take care of his father and to be with him. Verse 11. There I will provide for you. This is what he wants his father Jacob to know. There I will provide for you. I'll take care of you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Church, this is a beautiful It's an unmistakable picture of the grace of God through forgiveness and through his divine providence. And so we get to the part of the story here. After finishing what he desires his brothers to say to his father, he implores them to do it quickly. He's he's excited. He wants his father to know this. And yes, to erase any doubts as to who's speaking, and this is kind of a funny irony, it's as if Joseph is saying, unlike the other dreams I had 22 years ago, this is not a dream, but this is the fulfillment of that dream. He says in verse 12, and now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. It's me, Joseph. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. And then we see here in in these next two verses a sweet and a tender reunion. Verse 14, and then he, Joseph, fell upon his brother's Benjamin's neck and wept. And then Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them after his brothers talked with him. So we have all this hugging, this kissing, this embracing, this weeping. It may seem a bit anticlimactic when the scene ends. After that, his brothers talked with him. But again, think about 22 years ago. Moses records that they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. 
They hated him. And when they threw him in the pit, no doubt they cursed him. Now the Hebrew word for talked, it means to, to speak with, means to, to converse on the same level. There is now peace. That's what forgiveness brings. There's restoration and reconciliation. The healing begins. Forgiveness, it brings true fellowship. It's where we have all things in common. We're not holding back from one another. And in that fellowship, there's true intimacy. That's what forgiveness brings. After that, his brothers talked with him. Now, if that was it, that would be enough. Like, wow, there's forgiveness. They love one another again. It's all good. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 16. Now, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh's grace the grace of Pharaoh in making available the land, the best of the land, it's truly remarkable. And here's why. Consider this. Hebrews are an abomination to the Egyptians. They didn't even eat together. Remember that in chapter 43. But perhaps as some commentators suggest, providing Goshen is a place where they could settle. And this is a place where Joseph offers. It's a kind of a political way perhaps to to offer them for the best that they have, but to, to, to still keep them separate from the Egyptians. So whatever the case, here we have the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. He's willing to give them the best of Egypt for the sake of Joseph. Then we see in verse 21, the sons of Israel being blessed in abundance with Benjamin receiving overabundance. And then Jacob Israel, he's given all the good things of Egypt and more than enough to come down to Egypt in comfort. This is the grace of God working through providence in abundance. And look at this final scene in verse 25. They finally reach Jacob, the brothers do. So they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. And Jacob's reaction, it's, it's, it's kind of surprising. I was surprised as I read it. But then when you think about it, it's understandable given the reality that he lived these past two decades with the, the, the reality that his son Joseph was dead. There's no way he's alive. His reaction 
was something where it communicated, I just don't believe you. The word numb in the Hebrew, it's interesting because it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it indicates that his, his body was cold. It's as if life had been drained from him. Verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Think about that. The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Here's what's happening in this scene. Jacob, Israel, he's seeing God preserve his family. He's seeing evidences of God's provision, keeping his promise of making him a great nation, securing the line of the promised one, the deliverer, the Messiah, even in a time of worldwide famine, where death was imminent for so many. In remembering God's promise, he was revived. In remembering God's promise, Jacob was revived. How about you this morning? How about you guys this morning, church? Given life circumstances, are you overwhelmed at the moment? Or like Jacob, are you numb, perhaps apathetic, because you just don't feel God? You don't see evidences of his goodness. Are you doubting God's goodness because you're suffering? That's a legitimate question. It's a good question. Or perhaps you're trusting in his promises. I believe, but you're just not seeing anything go your way. You're praying, but you're not getting any answers. I want to ask you this. Where are you looking? Where are you looking? Where am I looking when these things happen to me? The psalmist says in Psalm 119.37, he uses the same word here in verse 27. The Hebrew word is haya, and that is revive. And he, he writes here in Psalm 119, verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your word. The psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word, because it's in his word that we see the promise of God, Jesus Christ himself. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. We sing this song. It's beautiful. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. In our passage this morning, we see the grace of Pharaoh, but this leads to a greater blessing. 
Go back to what Pharaoh had decreed for Joseph. Let's look at verse 18. He says here, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And in verse 20, there's assurance given. He says, have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And notice, twice here, Moses mentions the land as a blessing. It's a blessing. But I also want to go back to Genesis chapter 3 where Moses records something altogether different. He says in Genesis chapter 3, because of man's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, God pronounces a curse, a curse on the land. Because you have sinned against me, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. And certainly, we read here in this story, the worldwide famine is proof positive of this curse. And we still suffer from that curse in different ways today. Here's the point. It's through the curse of the land that God creates blessing for his people. It's through the curse of the land that God creates the blessing for his people through an unlikely source, the beneficence of a pagan ruler, Pharaoh, and through his chosen one to become like one from Egypt, Joseph. And it's exactly as Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So we see here the hand of divine providence is shown through Pharaoh, It's shown through Joseph, and that's clear in this passage. Very clear. And here's the good news. God is working his plan and his purposes now in this day and age through world leaders, through events, through things that are happening globally and things that are happening locally, through things that are happening on a community-wide level and things that are happening personally. Nothing, church, Nothing is outside of God's domain and nothing happens apart from the active hand of God. That's providence and that is a comfort to us, his people. And here's why. While Pharaoh blesses Jacob and his family because of Joseph, God initiates eternal blessing for us. Us, the people whom he has chosen from before the world began. And he did so by making his chosen one, the eternal son of God, Jesus, to become like one of us and to curse him with the punishment of our sin. Why? You remember earlier that I said that sin couldn't just be waved away. It needed to be punished. There needs to be justice that satisfies a holy God. God is both the just, punishing sin, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is how God did it. Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ redeemed us. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the gospel. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That is the cross. In our sin, we cannot see God. In our sin, we cannot know God. And in our sin, we cannot be with God. His holiness doesn't allow for it. And sin must be punished. God's justice demands it. And here's the good news. In his righteousness, in his holiness, in his goodness, in his faithfulness, in his love, for us and in his grace he cursed his son so that we may experience the healing and the forgiveness of our sin we may experience the beauty and the life and the joy of his presence Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us through the cross so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that listen church we might receive the the promised spirit through faith. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's true and real and spiritual life through faith in Christ given by the life giver, the spirit of God. So like Joseph's brothers, receiving the forgiveness of Joseph and the goodness of the land and all that Pharaoh had to offer, this story points us to experiencing the grace that was lavished upon us, excess abundance in Christ. And like Joseph, who throughout his life, where he experienced trauma and tragedy, we know that, but he also experienced triumph. Joseph had replayed the past faithfulness of God and in doing so, God had formed in him a more accurate and a transformative understanding of who he is. Did you catch that? Joseph, in replaying the past faithfulness of God, God had formed a more accurate and transformative understanding of who he is. And through all kinds of life's circumstances, God had become the anchor for his soul. He became the ballast through life's storms. I'm going to share a story with you here. Uh, December 12th, actually December 2022. Wait. December 2012. I'm telling you about the future, right? (laughs) Wow, it's getting really good. Ten years ago. (laughs) My wife had suffered from uh, sepsis and she had a bacterial infection that spread throughout her body. We had no idea what was going on. We had two weeks of antibiotics. We were going to urgent care. Finally, I brought her to the ER and it was there that the doctor had said that she was very sick. He had no other way to describe it. She had six specialists look at her and offer their specific diagnosis and treatment. Her blood pressure was low, alarmingly low. 
Her blood platelets were dangerously low as well. Her kidneys were failing. Once the kidneys go, everything goes. And she was experiencing delirium. I'm not exaggerating here when I say that death had never been so close. So the day after I checked her in, I got the kids situated with school. I, family was stepping in and helping out, and I talked to work. I was going in to see the doctors and talk to them about what's the latest, what's going to happen, if anything. Before I went in, I, I was there in the parking lot in the car, and I was praying. I was crying out to God, confronted with the reality that I, 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 might, I might not ever see my wife again other than in her deathbed. And strangely enough, I knew that God was still worthy of my worship. Regardless of what was happening, regardless of what I was feeling, I was singing to the Lord. Some of you may know this song. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. It wasn't uh, an overwhelming sense of peace, but there was a measure of peace that sustained me in that moment. It was kind of like this impression that the Spirit of God was bearing witness to my spirit that I am trustworthy. I am trustworthy. And it was a grace that as I was singing those words, we fall down. It was as if I was singing it with my wife. She was in, her, in the hospital and I'm here in the car. that even if she were to go, she was going to be with the Lord. And that was the true peace that comforted my soul. We had the same Savior. Now, the interesting thing about that, it was two years before this happened that she was asking me to go to another church for reasons I won't get into. But she said to me that she was, it's like she was dying on the vine. She was experiencing her own spiritual famine for two years. Hans, can we just look at another church, please? Nah, babe, we got to stay committed. I wasn't dwelling with my wife with understanding for two years. Long story short, her illness led us here. Call it what you may, I know that the hand of providence is active and happening in our lives right now. We don't know the answer. We, we don't understand the future, but in recalling the past promises of God, we can certainly begin to grow in our trust of God. And that's who Christ is. He's trustworthy. He's our peace and he's our comfort. And he is good.
the providence and promise of God. It's fulfilled in the gospel through what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we now get to worship him as his blood-bought saints, washed in his blood, we get to worship him. So I'm going to ask that question again that I asked earlier. Where are we looking today? Where are we looking today for hope, for relief, for comfort? What do we do when we're in the valley of the shadow of death? When darkness is our only friend? I want to encourage and exhort you to recall the promises of God. Recall the promises of God in his word. Look to Christ. Look to him who is the promise of God and worship him. The psalmist reminds us of his sovereignty and his providence. In our call to worship this morning, Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And he exhorts us to worship him as he opens up the psalm. Psalm 103, verse 2, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget the blessings of God. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. All of your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you, church, who satisfies us with good. The psalmist opens up here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Let's pray. Father, we do bless you. We want to bless your holy name because you alone are worthy to be praised and worshiped and honored. Help us to realize this and to live in the reality that our chief end is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. So Father, help us. Help us to see in your word that you who did not even spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him, graciously give us all things. Help us to trust you and to live by faith in you and to worship you, for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.